Welcome to episode 40 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, leadership advocate Tathra Street. Tall Poppy has been around for a year now, talking about the changing face of leadership, diving deep, and inspiring a new paradigm. And my guest today is all about that. Stephen Dunn's got his first CEO role at 28 and eventually learned that it was about power, yes, but also identity. He got feedback that left him gutted, igniting a journey of personal change and understanding his emotional wake. The day he was offered his current role at Leadership Victoria, he was also offered a CEO role, but turned it down. He now sees himself as helping others find their own power and achieve their potential. Talking about the shadow side of leadership, we identify virtues that become vices, the impact of acting from a hidden sense of inadequacy, and the shame in leadership, the tension that lies in the desire to be in control, but no one wanting to be controlled. This is a pretty epic conversation where Stephen really walks the talk, identifying his own shortcomings, taking responsibility, and doing the work to change his communication style. Though his intention was the same, the outcome was different, enabling more diverse perspectives and different opinions to be included, making leadership less exclusive. Enjoy this special one-year anniversary issue of Tall Poppy, changing the face of leadership one conversation at a time. I'd like to welcome Stephen Duns to Tall Poppy. Welcome. Hi, Tatsu. Great to be with you. Thanks. And so let's start with where in the world are we? So we are in um, a very much sunny Melbourne town um, in Australia right now. We're sitting in the old Treasury Building, which is a beautiful old building built in the 1860s, I think. Just as a little interesting fact, it was designed by an architect called J.J. Clark, who was 19 at the time that he designed this building. Wow. And um, on the radio, but it's a very grand place that was used to store the gold in the gold rush dates. Yeah, right. So. Very exciting. And Melbourne has been rated consistently for many years now as the most livable city in the world. Mm, absolutely. So that's where we are. Excellent. Mm. Love it. Tell me a bit about your role here at Leadership Victoria, which is the offices that we're currently in, and what Leadership Victoria is about. Sure. So my role is a, uh, as a what's called a senior facilitator at um, Leadership Victoria, and basically I run a whole range of different programs, uh, community leadership programs, and some programs for um, organisations, some government organisations, some businesses. And Leadership Victoria is um, is really about how do we support people to make swifter and better decisions on complex issues. We have a, a state, and I'm not sure if it's our purpose or our vision, which is creating a better world through excellent leadership. Um, and uh, that, that's true. Um, and then the purpose is very much around addressing complex issues through in a, in a better way and in a swifter way. Yeah. Love it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to this, to where you are? Sure. Um, that's that's a. <laughs> I know it's just a small question. That's right. So, um, in a nutshell, I've because the journey to get here was quite a powerful journey for me in a sense, and so um, it was uh, a consequence of me parting ways with my previous organisation. I was the CEO there, um, and the board and I had a you know not particularly wasn't. Unpleasant, but it was a you know it was a fairly sudden parting of ways, and so I was in the incredibly privileged position to have some time to really reflect on what I wanted to. The temptation, a strong temptation, was to rush into another job, especially another CEO job. But I decided not to do that and really reflect. And then Leadership Victoria advertised a role that I 
was just too late to get involved with that process. And then the CEO, Richard, rang me up and said, well, there's another job. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, sure. So um, I ended up, I'd known Richard for some time. So we that's how I got here. Yeah, it was a sort of a, a very much a considered, and it was quite interesting from my perspective because on the day that I was offered the job here, I was offered another CEO role, and so it was a really interesting decision for me. It's a very conscious decision for me about saying, you "No, know, I've done that CEO thing enough, and I um, I want to do something else." So it sounds like it was a, a values-based decision for you. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It was, and well, actually, it was even further than that. It was really about. It was an identity-based decision for me. Okay. It was yeah. about. So and, you know, obviously, values play into that in, in an important way. But what I realised was that being a CEO was was had become too important for me. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. I was on an aeroplane flying back from the US, and um, you know, when you go through those endless loops of many movies because I rarely sleep on the plane and there was a movie and I can't remember which movie it was but it it included a a woman who was dying of cancer and she went to the chemotherapy centre and one of the other uh, people in the chemotherapy centre said to her so who are you and she said oh I'm a journalist from working with the New York Times I can't remember exactly what it was but it was a grand you know sort of good position and the woman looked at her and said I didn't ask what you do I asked who you are and I think that we often get our identities too much wrapped up in um, what we do rather than who we are. And so and that, from my perspective, I, that, that was definitely what was going on for me was that the being a CEO allowed me, if people said, you know, who are you? I could tell I'm a CEO and that let me off the hook. <laughs> I didn't have to think anymore. I didn't have to, you know, that was okay. You know, that became an okay thing to be. And in fact, you know, ultimately I realized that it wasn't either important to me or certainly necessary to me and to a certain extent even enjoyable to me. Um, I, I love teaching. Um, and so I, uh, I get the opportunity to do that now. Hmm. And so let's take a few steps back as far as, because um, you've done a few degrees that have sure. gotten you to, to this point. So can you say a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. So um, my first degree out of, out of school was a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. And then I did a, a Bachelor of Letters in Psychology. Letters? Yeah, it's a strange degree. In fact, I'm not even sure they do it anymore. Um, it was a, it's a postgraduate degree, but at the undergraduate level, it was a okay. slightly weird thing. But uh, the great thing about it was that I could use a whole heap of the subjects I'd done in my first degree towards it. So I didn't. I really only had to do the major, which was good. So and then does I, it give you more letters behind your name, or what? Well, yeah, I could become B lit. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so B A B lit, and then M B A. So I did a master of business administration, and then I did a doctor of business leadership. And so I, you know occasionally joke about the fact that with my philosophy degree I learned how people think with my psychology degree I learned how people feel with the MBA I learned how to make money out of it and then I really did what I wanted to do in terms of the leadership space yeah nice excellent one of the conversations that we had had before was about the shadow side of leadership Mm. and I'd love it if you could just say a little bit about what that means to you and and how it came about in terms of it being a topic of significance for you yeah sure so when I did my doctorate I I I did a whole sort of deep dive into values um, and I got a bit irritated because nearly all of the leadership all of the, the yeah the, the literature about leadership values is really about virtues there's endless literature out there and then there's meta studies of, of that about right. leadership values and 
and I and I realized, yeah, that it's all about you know courage, responsibility, integrity, honesty, um, and one of the things that struck me about that was, well, there's two things that struck me about. The first one was that any any virtue taken to the extreme can become a vice. So you know, responsibility, as an example, can become you know micromanagement, inability to delegate, a whole range of different things. Controlling, controlling, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, courage can become, you know, uh, foolhardiness. Like and risk taking to a... Yeah, yeah. Take, taking too many risks yeah. and, and, and not wearing enough of the black hat. Uh, ambition um, can become very much self-seeking and um, that wonderful Shakespearean quote of vaulting ambition which overleaps itself and falls on the other. Mm. Um, and so, so I, I started thinking about that a bit more and saying, well, because I'm also very, very committed to this idea of a strengths-based approach. Um, and so in one sense, you know, there's, there's often we talk about, well, what are the strengths and how do we stretch those strengths out? And actually, if you take them too far, they can become a weakness. Um, mm. So that's the, that, was, that was the first element. And the second element was that I think there are a whole heap of values that are associated with many leaders that we don't like to talk about. So things like power, control, competition, greed, status, those sorts of things that I think are very much part of uh, sort of motivating values for many people in leadership roles, um, and but we we tend not to talk about those. One of the consequences of the, the values as virtues and, and that that sort of noble stance of values is that it makes leadership exclusive, um, and it means that you know if you're not a a, a noble person. And all that that entails, I mean, you go right back to, um, literally, to um, aristocracy, then then you can't be a leader. Um, and I think that that, I don't have that view of leadership at all. I think that... It's, I guess today it would be considered a reasonably archaic view of yeah, leadership. Yeah, I think that's However, right. there's still a lot of those, I don't know if it's sentiments or values that I, I think pervade how people perceive leadership. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and too often, leadership is assumed to come along with position and authority. And there's, there's absolutely no relationship between leadership and authority because there are many people in positions of authority that are not good leaders at all. Yeah, we've and there seen are, a lot of that, yeah. not just in, in the US, but even in Australia here today with yeah, this right. news breaking that, you know, some of the, those who had dual citizenship yeah. um, who refused to step down are now actually know that they, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's right. I just heard that before. So that, that's um, very interesting news. And, well, and then actually, this is the great example. One of those people is Barnaby Joyce, who's the leader of the National Party and the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, and he's been quite uh, vocally opposed to the marriage equality legislation that's up for, for grabs at the moment. And yet, at the same time, it turns out that, uh, you know, despite being married, he's been in relationships of, well, abusive relationships, yeah, abusive relationships um, outside of his marriage. And so this whole idea of sanctity of marriage is completely, you know, thrown on its head. So, you know, I think think he's in big trouble. And, uh, you know, what's fascinating about that is that if he really is in trouble, and, I mean, it's likely he'll get voted back just because of the nature of his seat, but... It hasn't always been in that party's hands. And so if all that stuff comes out, if he loses his seat, the government loses its majority because mm. there's only one seat yeah. majority. And so, yeah. that, you know, it's, it's quite dramatic potentially, which yeah. is... But it's fascinating. So there you've got someone in a leadership position, even though I said that positions of leadership don't go together, but, you know, in terms of... Elected representative exactly, that exactly. is intended to lead the country. But. Yeah, and he's the deputy prime minister, and then there's very clearly a shadow side there. You know, there's a whole range of things where he has used power completely inappropriately. Mm. Um, and, and so that's an example of that, and I, and I think there are many examples, and and the I think the challenge for leaders is not to try to not have those 
shadow side values, but understand them, have the insight to know what the triggers are and how to manage them and in a sense to you know diminish them but or learn to work with them. Mm. And so it, it, the, the temptation is to say, well, if you have those you know, bad values, then you can't be a leader, but that's just not true. Um, and in fact, it takes much more courage to really be clear about what your vulnerabilities are, mm. what your triggers are, and learn how to deal with those in an effective way. And, and I think that takes a lot more courage as a leader than pretending that you're this noble well, I think person. there's this. There's a lot of pressure, both in the political world and the business world, and, and and sort of I suppose in the leadership space, to put your best face forward and to to appear as though you're doing the right thing and to to you know to stand up for what you believe in. But and and even in in looking at the values that some of these folks have, they probably think of themselves as perhaps valuing excellence, but how it is perceived by others is that it's it's perfectionism, for example. Yeah, sure. And they. They, they don't really think of themselves as being perfectionist, perhaps, which is why I, I, I think it's so yeah important to acknowledge well that we're human beings. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, what's interesting, you know, that 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 value of perfectionism, it, it comes from a place of insecurity about being not good enough, and and so therefore you know always trying to prove that that you're better and never feeling good enough, um, and so and often know, overcompensating. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and then all sorts of ridiculous demands on yourself and others, um, mm. and so that's another great example of the shadow side of leadership, where you know, that sort of. What's quite a noble sense of, of excellence can be um, can be diminished and, and or taken to the extreme of being you know, perfectionism, which is really about uh, an internal insecurity. Mm. So, what do you think it's going to take for the culture to shift into a space of being able to feel more able to hold people to account and to call them out on on behaviours that aren't in line with the value that they're aiming to express, but they probably aren't even aware that they're they're going beyond beyond the intention of how they're they're aiming to express the values. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think there needs to be some conversation about value, how values relate to leadership, um, and it's not just about virtues. There is a shadow side of leadership, and I think that um, you know we need to um, start to you know in terms of things like the stuff that Leadership Victoria does around leadership development programs, mm-hmm. being open and honest about that. You know, we have one of our most senior community leadership programs we, we ran today, and we had a session on values, and we, and we didn't go there, but at the end they asked. We, you know, we want to explore that. We want to go into this idea of the – and they brought up the, this term of the shadow side of leadership. And so that's, you know, that's 21 very senior people in the city of Melbourne, which is, you know, very exciting. So that's a start. And I think, but I think we and others need to be a bit more open to it. And, you know, it, this is not new stuff, but this idea of being able to work with vulnerability is really important as well. Um, I do also think that that we need to be careful and mindful about the relationship between leadership and shame as well. I, I, my, my view is that leaders either consciously or unconsciously very often put evoke the shame response in others um, and, and are desperately fearful of the shame effect in themselves. As Brene Brown says, that the, um, the definition of, of shame is really a fear of disconnection. Um, and then you add in that the work of Gordon Wheeler and, and this idea about what is identity, the idea that identity is 
is too often about separateness, about, you know, I am separate to, to you, and whereas in fact, in reality, we are all connected in all sorts of different ways. And, and so therefore, you know, then you start thinking about this idea of disconnection, and it actually has an impact on identity. And so the relationship between shame and identity um, and leadership, I think, is a really interesting thing that needs a lot more exploration. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. And perhaps down the track we can have that conversation mm. as well. I just want to step back to the t- stuff about vulnerability and if you'd be willing to share some of your own sure. experience about um, you know, getting feedback and the impact mm. that it's had on you. Yeah. It was a few years ago now, but I, I went to do the... Um, the accreditation process for the the leadership circle profile and as part of that you do your own thing and I was um, so I got a whole heap of people to give me feedback and I was just completely gutted by the feedback and this was through the 360 process yeah so the 360 so process yeah. so was it anonymous then or um, yeah it was anonymous I didn't yeah. know I didn't know who said what I mean I knew who I'd asked yep. to um, mm-hmm. to give me feedback mm-hmm. um, and, and just some of the examples there's on, on the reactive start side there, there was um, a very high um, result in relation to being distant, being critical, and uh, and it was that whole idea of in that protection quadrant about saying well, protection circuit. And and it was and what was really interesting for me is that I've for a long time had this view that if I have an opinion, um, then anyone can say, look, that's just not right, and challenge me on that opinion, and and if people don't do that, well, then that's their problem. And likewise as well is that, you know, whatever I do, um, if people take offence to that, well, you know, it's them taking offence. It's never, I don't intend to give offence. And if they take it, well, that's their problem as well. And I think that, you know, I'm sort of sailing through life. I'm a, I like expression of um, the emotional wake. And and I, I really was not very aware of my emotional wake. And, and I, you know, I think it was, you know, if I think back now, I was... Sort of stupid and naive, but that, that's okay. Um, but I think you know, I was always in a position of power. I was either the CEO or the managing partner, or whatever it was. And and people have a whole range of expectations, and even if those expectations are not reasonable and fair, we still have to be mindful of them and the impact of what we're doing to other people. There's a, a very wonderful friend of mine, um, Christina Baldwin, and she she had the conversation with me one day. And she said, "Stephen, you have a very declaratory style." Um, you make declarations, and, and that's true. Um, and um, and the problem with that is that you know when someone in positions of power makes a declaration, it's actually quite difficult for other people to challenge that. Um, and she said, you know, just contribute. Yeah, and she's actually quite a she's quite a declarative person herself. Um, and she said that that was one of the things that she's had to learn. And, and she said, you know, why don't I try being more inquiring? Mm. Um, and so, and I have, and I put a lot of effort into that. And so, and even things like emails, and I'll go back and rewrite emails um, instead of saying, "We need to do this." Uh, I'll write and say, "I wonder if doing this would be a good thing to do." Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's, it, it elicits a completely different response, mm-hmm. a completely different response. So that inquiring approach is, has a completely different impact. Now, my intention was always the same. But I just wasn't really mindful of the impact that I was having on other people because, my, you know, I'm white, middle-class male in a position of power. Well, you know, I need to also be mindful of that and the, the impact that that has on other people around me as well. Um, and I don't think I was particularly. Um, I, just, I just work on this assumption that, well, if people 
needed to disagree. They couldn't. I'd welcome the disagreement. I'm not even sure that that's true in real honesty, but uh, I had that view. And I, whereas now, I think I would be much more. I'd seek that disagreement out, mm. you know, in a, in a in a way, and be genuinely more inquiring about what's going on. And that's how, so that's a one example of um, how I, I think I've done things. I do things differently. But before, completely different 360 degree feedback process with the you know, the human synergistics lifestyles inventory. I got quite a strong response. I can't remember one of the red ones. I can't remember what it was. It was. Well, it wasn't ego, but might have been power. Anyway, what was interesting about it was that what I, what where it came from was a real sense of anger, hmm. and and I found that um, actually that might be another interesting value for those for the um, the shadow side of leadership. Ah, but yeah. Part of me, the justification in my mind at the time was, well, there's lots to be angry about. Look at the, yeah. you know, look at the injustice. That's right. You know, how can you be okay with this stuff? Yeah, you know, um, but in fact, it's in a sense, it's not about that. It's about understanding that there's injustice mm-hmm. and then being able to bring people along with you to fight it rather than being angry about it because yep. that just alienates people yeah. <laughs> and it's much more about me than it is about other people really um, and so yeah so I, I, all of that I think is really important and they say that feedback is the breakfast, breakfast of champions and I, and I do agree with that I, I, I think that it's really important I am at the same time quite um, surprised by how reluctant people are to receive feedback and certainly Share feedback they get with others. I find that completely. Yeah. And so, a little example. I'm working with a group at the moment, and we're doing a. Um, it's a pretty simple emotional intelligence piece, and um, we'd worked at a whole plan. And now they've said, "Oh no, no! First of all, you have to have a one-on-one session before you share it with the group." And completely fine at one level. You know, maybe they should have been in the design in the first place. But it's just really interesting that. You know what that's shown to me is is that there isn't a sense of safety in that group, yeah. and and so we need to create the contained and the holding environment for that to happen. And so if one on one interviews is going to create that holding environment, that's great. Um, but it, it, it's just it's just an interesting example of of you know in a sense how almost how fragile people are. Mm. Um, well, I can imagine shame is quite associated yeah, with that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and whereas I don't quite have that same sense myself. I mean, in some ways I do, but but I'm just sort of, sort of hungry to, to get that feedback because, you know, I have such a strong commitment to self-improvement. I wonder if that's a value as well. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. You mm. know, for me, there's no question for me that learning is one of my, my absolutely core values and, you know, sort of part of my purpose in life um yeah that's absolutely true and you know and i obviously shouldn't be surprised that people have different values or value that differently as well (laughs) yeah i'm gonna ask what leadership means to you now that's different than earlier yeah sure i think for me it was leadership i mean i first became a ceo when i was 28 years old and i think that's absolutely no awareness of this whatsoever but really on reflection I think what that was about was about being in control. And it wasn't about being in control of others. It was about being in control of myself, you know, mm-hmm. the need to control my emotions and my, my inability to feel comfortable with myself. Um, you know, I, had a, I had a very strong sense of not being lovable. And so I think that that, that led me to, to, if I could get into a position of power, it meant that I didn't have to face up to that. Ah, interesting. And, and so it wasn't about wanting power over others. It was, it was about having the power to hide. Really, mm. I think. Um, yeah, and so, so for me, um, leadership back then was very much about that. Whereas now, for me, it, it, it's completely different. It, it, it isn't. It isn't about 
it has very little to do with power. Uh, well, <laughs> that's an interesting question. It has a lot to do with about helping other people find their own power. Um, so it is about, you know, what can I do to help people achieve their potential? You know, that, that's, that for me is, you know, that's absolutely clear to me about my purpose in life. And I think that's my leadership role um, is to work with people to help them find their, their potential. And I've, there is nothing that I find more rewarding than, than that work. I find that, you know, just completely, you know, um, rewarding and fulfilling and um, meaningful and um, exciting. Mm. And so if someone were to come to you with a change initiative, a business idea, they want to write a book or something to that effect, but they're aware that they've got both internal and external barriers that they're facing, what advice would you have for them? Mm. They say that advice is worth what you pay for it. I'm, I'm reluctant to give advice, really, but I will anyway, despite that reluctance. And I think that um, for me it would be about saying, well, I wonder what's going on for you. It would be the opening for a conversation. Um, and I'd like to have that conversation about saying, okay, so what's the impact of what's going on? Um, and to what extent are they contributing to those barriers as well? And in terms of what they're trying to achieve, you know, is it aligned with their purpose? Is it is it really about you know what what they want to be doing? What's their contribution to it? And then you know, a conversation about saying, well, how do you want it to be? What what would good look like? And then perhaps you know about well, then how might you get there? So for me, it would be it would be the beginning of a conversation. Yeah, mm, I love it. That's great advice. I'm wondering if there's anything else, whether it's in relation to the concept of leadership or the. Um, I guess perhaps this transition from an old style of leadership to a new style of leadership, the shadow stuff or your experience that you want to share before we finish. One other thing comes to mind. I think that we're in a, an interesting transition period at the moment where at, at one level we want people to be the, the hero leader, you know, to come in on the white steed and, and you know, tell us what to do, the sort of a brave heart type model of leadership. At one level we want that um, it allows us to not take so much responsibility. It allows us to um, sort of project all of our <laughs> stuff onto someone else. Um, I wonder if that's why there's so much um, fandom around the superhero. At the yeah, moment. maybe that's right. Mm. So, so I, I think there's a yearning for that for that sort of heroic leadership. But what's fascinating is that when when we get that, we really resent it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a real paradox for for, uh, for leaders at the moment. And yeah, just a little example. There was there was a um, uh, a few years ago now, but Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, grounded the fleet of the Qantas aeroplanes, and it was really interesting because the uh, the response, especially in Australia, was how dare that Irish faggot ground our aeroplanes? You know, the sort of the xenophobia, the homophobia that emerged wow. as a result of that, and you know, the situation was much more complex than than you know people allowed for mm-hmm. um, and simple to point the finger and sort of yeah, get um, curious but, about what's but really he going did on. the big thing he did the stake in the ground yeah, yeah. because two of the unions that they did with I think 14 unions and two of them were holding over the barrel and so he, he did the stake in the ground and did the heroic thing um, and then people really resented it and so there's a really difficult thing about not being able to win with a um, for a leader at the moment and and I think there's a lot to learn from complex adaptive systems and and whenever you know one of the, the temptations for us to be controlling you know, I do loads and loads and loads of groups I ask the question who likes to be in control mm. and nearly everybody always nearly everybody you know at least 90% sometimes 100% put their hands up yeah I want to be in control and I say okay then so who wants to be controlled and nearly everybody 
you know, it doesn't put down. Occasionally there's one person, oh, yeah, no responsibility, off the hook. You know, like someone can tell me what to do and I'll just do it. And, you know, and that's interesting. But so there's this inherent tension in any human system of, of on the one hand, people wanting to be controlling and the other people, people really hating being controlled. And I think there's a real tension there and I think we need to do things differently. And, and I, you know, I, I talk about the system needs to be nudged, titillated and excited. Um, <laughs> you can't control it because if you try to control it, it will self-organise against you. Yep. Um, whereas if you just, as I say, nudge, titillated and excited, then it might self-organise to where you want it to go. Mm. I've heard that even with change initiatives, most of them fail, as, mm. as we've often heard. And I've heard that instead of, you know, pushing change, you really basically need to create an environment where change is something that people are inspired to do rather than try and make people do anything. Um, and I think that's something that what I see is that most people in positions of authority or people that are attempting to create change don't have an appreciation of that and just want to, you know, even you know, as an activist in my younger days, I was very much about pushing information on people to inspire them to change. And lo and behold, it didn't inspire people to change. And so I recognize that it's not just information. It really needs to be about, yeah, inspiring people from a heart perspective, you know, information is useful, but but yeah, creating that context and whether it's about being able to have space to be vulnerable and to share things that you wouldn't normally or, yeah, I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm reminded of, um, actually, one of the two things that uh, Ed O'Malley, who's, the, who's been the CEO of Kansas Leadership Center for a while, and he's just standing to be the governor of um, uh, Kansas. And, and he, taught, he was here just a few weeks ago and, and a couple of things. He, he wrote a book called Your Leadership Edge and, and one of the elements in that is um, speak to loss. And one of the people here asked him what's the most important thing in his book and he said that was probably it. And he said if he could rewrite the book, he would just adjust that slightly uh, from speak to loss to let loss speak. And it's such a really lovely idea about, you know, in, in any change process, even though, even if people are going to gain a lot, they will also generally lose something. Mm-hmm. And often many people lose something. And so allowing that voice to be heard and that voice of loss, I think, is a, is a really lovely way to think about how to make change a little bit more effective. Um, the other thing that, that he said, which it's a, it's a great story, and it, it, it works much better in America than Australia, but he talked about the... the baseball batting average um, and apparently I, I know nothing about baseball but I know enough to understand the story that a, a batting average of 300 is sort of Hall of Fame type level of, of, of batting average and what that means is that out of every 10 pitches you hit 3 Mm. Um, and that's Hall of Fame stuff. And and I think there is something about, you know, leadership is rare. And we have the opportunities where we, we have the opportunity to The ball is coming at us, being pitched at us from 66 feet away. The ball is coming at us. And, and sometimes we just sort of freeze and do nothing. Other times we might go for it and miss it. And then every now and then we hit it and we hit a you know a home run. And and I think that that's a that's a nice image of we do have this expectation if someone, especially if we think of someone in a role, but we have expectations of leaders that've got to get it right all the time and it's just unfair. That's what I was saying about the pressure to, you know, to look good and to to do the right mm. thing and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I wanted to take a step back to what you were talking about in terms of uh, letting loss speak. Mm. It reminds me of Peter Block's work mm. around the dissent conversation yeah. and how important that is to enable people to actually move through the things that they're concerned about to actually be able to make a commitment. And again, I think it's something that, that often gets missed and sort of glossed over. It's like, oh, you know, just focus on the positives and, you know, what you're yeah. going to gain rather than, like, That's understanding right. that people actually have feelings about stuff and, and how it's going to change. But 
Mm. Yeah, yeah I, that's right. Actually, with Peter Block in Cincinnati a few years ago. And oh, really? Yeah, there was, there was. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember what was exactly the phrase, but there was something about you know allowing the no or something. Mm-hmm. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what it was, but it, it was an interesting idea um, about allowing that dissent mm, you know, and yeah. making it okay to say no. And there's a lot of work around that in all sorts of different spaces. Yeah, and, absolutely. And you know, the wisdom of the minority. We, we, mm. We're completely obsessed by democracy. And, you know, for good reason. There's certainly probably not a, another, as Churchill said, there's, um, it's not very good, but it's the best one we've got. Um, and, and the problem is that when you take a very democratic approach, which is probably better than tyranny, then the... Um, yeah, the people the who tyranny lose the of vote. the majority. Yeah, that's right. The people <laughs> who lose the vote are often just left, and there's a lot of wisdom in that in that mm. minority. And, and and as a leader, how do we elicit and, and allow for the wisdom of the minority is a really powerful idea as well, I think. Mm, excellent. It's been great talking to you, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. Whoa, that was a real highlight interview for me. Where to start? Who knew there'd be so many nuances of the shadow side of leadership? And yeah, we really only scratched the surface. This is the first time I heard a guest respond to the tall poppy question in this way. He was inquisitive about what was going on for the person. He was mindful of how they might be contributing to the experience of being blocked and how they might take responsibility and if they're aligned with their purpose and seemed genuinely interested in how they'd like it to be and curious rather than prescriptive about how to get there. He's clearly done the work, and I was really impressed with how much he shared about his own experience and the impact of the feedback on his leadership style and his way of being, being more inquiring than directive, as suggested to him by a friend. His approach to the tall poppy advice really walks the talk here. And I really like what he said about discovering that when he saw that he rated highly on the synergistics scale for anger, how he related to that, initially justifying it, that there's lots to be angry about moved through that, reframing it to be with or accept the injustice. And that's not always easy to do. And leadership is about working with people to address it together. This is particularly pertinent for change makers, but for anyone really. And the part about change and creating an environment is a preview to the next episode with Josie McLean about sustainability, leadership and change. And I'll talk more about that later. So what are you taking to heart in this episode? Does it give you pause to reflect on your own style, how it impacts others, getting feedback, whether from 360-degree process or otherwise? And what about the level of safety for our people to bring all of themselves to work or to our communities, enabling them to be vulnerable, to try new things, to challenge your ideas? How do you know if the holding environment makes it safe for people to be real, to stop being yes-men? and women, and other genders. What can we do to truly increase the experience of safety, and what difference will it make? I love what Stephen says about how we all want heroic leadership, yet when we get it, we resent it. So what can we do to generate more self-leadership? How can we be that change and inspire others to lead at every level? If you want to find out more about Stephen or Leadership Victoria, they have some fantastic programs. All the links are in the show notes. The Changemaker Project is now underway, and I'm looking for people to include. So if you're a changemaker or know someone I should talk to, please get in touch. I'm looking for people who are as committed to advancing humanity as I am, for people who are dedicated to making a difference through creating a new future. Check out tathrastreet.com forward slash changemaker for more info. And of course, Links in the show notes. 
It involves a 20-minute conversation to help me get an understanding of what changemakers are dealing with and how to be of service of the effectiveness of changemaking. I'll be producing a report at the end of it to help us all understand what it means to be a changemaker in this day and age, what works, what doesn't, with the themes that are emerging and the unexpected outcomes. I invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook and be sure to drop me a line to say that you're a tall poppy listener so I know to actually respond that you're not some random. Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Instagram mostly if you like flowers and nature pics and that kind of thing. I'll be on Twitter at the Future of Work conference in Melbourne on November 28th. So if you want to follow that conversation, I'm really excited about it. It's the fourth year and yeah, it's going to be a good one. Thanks for being part of the Tall Poppy community, where we are changing the paradigm of leadership, where we question the virtues, the values, and explore the shadow side of leadership, having the real conversations that inspire the changemaker in all of us to question how we lead in business, work, and life. Yeah, this is our one-year anniversary. It was exactly a year ago today that I recorded and launched the intro episode, and listening to it earlier, it still rings true. I've learned a lot, and I've been blessed to provide you with 40 interviews that have brought me a great deal of fulfillment. And through these amazing conversations about leadership, this is about tall poppies sticking their neck out, being vulnerable, having courage. So thank you for being on this journey with me. And if you have something to say about it, I'm all ears please email poppy at tathrastreet.com. And just a heads up, I'll be taking a break in January. I'll be back with a new season of Tall Poppy in February 2018. But before then, our next episode is with Josie McLean on her findings of eight years of research into sustainability leadership and why change initiatives fail. It's going to be a good one. See you on the flip side. (laughs) 